great to be in Moravian Falls and uh, great to be with you. I, Carla reminded me of something yesterday that Neville Johnson had shared and I, I thought it was, um, I wasn't going to share it, but then I, as I was sitting here today, it came back to my mind and yesterday the pastor announced uh, a couple that had lost a son or a son had passed away and uh, I want to share this testimony because it's pretty profound. Uh, I remember Neville sharing with us that it, this was like in ni- 1997 or some sometime in, in that area area of time. His daughter was going to Australia to witness to some friends. They, they're from Australia, but she was in the States or something and traveled back. And she got in a car accident and died. And uh, obviously, it's a hard, always hard when we when the children die before the parents. I'm sure I haven't, haven't experienced that. I've had good friends that have passed away and that's difficult and parents that have passed away and that's difficult. And uh, I was just thinking about this uh, testimony after Carla shared it with, uh, reminded me yesterday. And what happened is I was at a, a conference with um, my friend Joe Sweet on the East uh, West Coast and I was sitting in the front next to Neville Johnson and Paul Keith was teaching and uh, Neville was, all of a sudden, he was just gone. You could just feel it. He was not in the meeting anymore. He had gone someplace in the spirit realm, and I was jealous. Like, I'm, I mean, I love Paul Keith. It wasn't that he was not a great speaker, but I was like, I wish I was where Neville was. And, and uh, after the meeting, Neville said, Chris, you want to go? I said, Neville, where'd you go? And he said, let's go up, upstairs and talk. And so we went upstairs, and he said, during the meeting, my daughter came and, and sat on my lap. And he said to her something like, honey, why are you here today? And she said, uh, you'll know at the end of the message. Well, Paul Keith ends his message by saying something like, uh, we were going to have the, the daughters pray for their fathers today. And it was really a beautiful uh, time. And uh, so she came for that. And I, I asked Neville, I said, how, Neville, how often do you see your daughter? That's one of the cloud of witnesses. And he said, well, I haven't seen her for a while. It's been about a month. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's interesting because our Western mindset, we talked about the Prince of Greece a little bit on Friday night. And that logical reasoning mindset that was established through Socrates and, and Plato and, and uh, the other guy, uh, they, they created a Western mindset for us that's limited us from moving in the supernatural. We, you know, they, they're the ones that developed the Senate and democracy and debate and all the things that we've embraced fully. And not that those things are bad in themselves, but when they rule out the spirit realm and uh, everything is logical and reasoning. You, I could tell you this story about Neville and... Uh, you're like, ah, maybe I believe it, maybe I don't. I'll just put it aside. I haven't even shared the story yet, the one I want to get to. But uh, it, it's interesting. If you read the last couple chapters of Revelation, it talks about John the Beloved uh, falling down at the feet of an angel, right? And But the angel says to him, which is not an angel, says, don't bow down to me. I'm one of your brothers, the prophets. Basically, stand up. I'm just a man. I'm a prophet. I'm a cloud of witness. We see it. Uh, we see cloud of witnesses appearing to man. Some some people have used their reasoning, logical mind, saying, "Well, 
it, the word says that you're not to uh, you know, conjure up the dead. They're not dead. They're the most living, alive human being. I mean, they're alive. Uh, the, he's talking about the dead ones. But our redemptive family, I remember walking with the Lord. Oftentimes I'll go for a walk and just talk to the Lord and listen to the inward voice of the Lord. And he said to me, Chris, I want you to uh, learn to fellowship with my redemptive family, the angels and the cloud of witnesses. He said, you've, you believe in them, but you've just kind of not... Uh, you, you, you've not been sensitive to their presence like Neville and, and Rick or Sadu or whoever you guys uh, uh, like and <laughs> follow, all these great guys. And, uh, you know, it's that principle throughout Scripture, what we honor uh, opens up to us, that realm opens up to us. If we honor the angelic realm, we've got friends that will, you know, they have doormats in there welcoming angels because it's an it's something that they're honoring and then they're being revealed to them they're still here whether you honor them or not but they don't open up to you right there there's angels in this room obviously cloud of witnesses see the issue with the church in america is that we're not not this church but the broader church most uh, much of the church is that their goal is they think Jesus came to get us to heaven, and he didn't. He came to uh, redeem us into true sonship, not gender, but when I'm talking about sonship, it, it's, a, uh, uh, it's our inheritance. It's a right to the throne, the, the secession to the throne. That's who we are as men and women. We're the bride of Christ. We're sons, uh, both, both genders, and God all of heaven is focused on earth when much of earth is focused on heaven, right? We got it mixed up. God has a redemptive purpose for the earth and he's using his uh, redemptive family, the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, the angelic realm, they're focused on us. They wanna see uh, Christ's glory manifest in us. And I wanna talk about the Melchizedek priesthood a little bit today because I believe that was the original intent for mankind was to be a royal priesthood. But let me share this uh, story about Neville. So in, uh, when his daughter died uh, around 1997, what happened was during, during this same time, there was a plane that flew off the east coast of the United States and it crashed into the ocean. You can Google it. I Googled it and found it years ago. I haven't done it for years, but after I heard the story, I wanted to find out what plane it was. And uh, they don't know what happened to the plane. Was it friendly fire by accident by our military? Was it, nobody ever found out. It was just a whole, the plane went down, everybody on board died. Well, Neville's daughter comes to Neville and says, uh, Dad, this was after the plane crash, 97, 98 uh, time period, and said to him something like, Dad, the Lord sent me on that plane before it went down, before it crashed, and I was shared the gospel, and many of them gave their hearts to the Lord. And then it crashed. And then she said something interesting. She said, it was, it, I, I was sent there in response to the intercession of the family members on the earth. And so if you're praying, if we're praying here, we don't know. God could choose to use an angel. He could choose to use you, your neighbor. He could choose to use a cloud of witness and, and respond to that intercessory prayer. And it's a beautiful 
co-laboring together with those that were actually, the Bible says, were actually fulfilling uh, their mandates and their promises. They're not, they're not, they're not uh, complete apart from us. And this uh, intercessory uh, uh, place we have on earth we get to engage the angelic realm. We get to engage the cloud of witness realm. They're all laboring together for the purposes of Christ, that, that his name would be glorified in us. And the Bible's so amazing that Isaiah 60, it talks about there's a time coming when the people of the earth are going to come down and bow at our feet because they only see Jesus. It's the most amazing passage. It's, it's, it's the manifest sons. It's a Melchizedek priesthood when they, they'll come down and bow at our feet not because we're anybody, but because we've lost ourselves in the fullness of Christ and all they see is Christ. You read Isaiah 60 and you're like, this is the most amazing uh, chapter. And false humility says, we, uh, that can't be us because everyone just is supposed to bow down to Christ. Jesus, you know, Revelation says there's 12 thrones with apostles on them in, in Revelation. And you're thinking, why are they on thrones in heaven? It should be Jesus, Jesus himself alone. Because Jesus' original intent was to fill man with himself to glorify himself. It, I mean, he, it was his decision, not, uh, not ours, right? We didn't decide, hey, God, come and fill me up. It was, no, it, my decision that, that Christ in you would be the hope of glory for the nations of the earth. And so false humility said that the enemy keeps whispering to us saying we can't be fully his in a way that we manifest and look like him. Now, we all have different personalities. We don't, nobody wants to look like the person next to you. We want to manifest Christ in our own personalities, in our own who we are. Some of us are more introverted and some of us are more not introverted. I came from a family of introverts and my wife came from a family that they just talked all the time to each other at the table and over each other. I'm like, oh, this is confusing. Who's talking? Everybody's talking. And uh, it was just, it was like, you know, the Scottish, uh, uh, if you're Italian, you understand that probably because aren't you guys just in each other's face? <laughs> Scandinavians, not so much so. We're just quiet, you know, just like nobody talks unless... Uh, you know, somebody asked him a question. But we're all different and it's all beautiful to the Lord. You know, I, I, I remember listening to Jack Hayford back in, way back in, in the 80s. And he made this statement. Uh, he said, Adam and Eve's children would have been all colors because God breathed his, de- his DNA into Adam and Eve, which is the DNA of all mankind. So he would have had all kinds of colored children. I thought, that's amazing. That's the family of God. Everyone tries to figure out, well, how did this person come up? You know, and it's like, no, because the DNA of God has every tribe and tongue in it. And when he breathed it into Adam, Adam's offspring became every, uh, every color. And, and I always thought, Jack Hayford, that's brilliant. That must have been the Lord that spoke that to you. Uh, so I, I wanted to share a couple things on this Melchizedek priesthood. I had a number of years ago, um, again, well, well, I'll just share it, and then sometimes I'll share things, and my wife will say, why did you share that? It's just confusing people, you know? And, uh, you know, if you share something and people don't agree with it, they can tune out the rest of the the teaching, and they're focused on that one thing. I'll tell you what happened. So I shared, uh, actually, we had a three and a half years we met with uh, Carla and there was about 20 of us meeting in the peach house and we would wait on the Lord every day and one of the gals in that group 
uh, started having an encounter friendship with Joan of Arc. Joan, just like, you know, I've got another, some of you know Terry Bennett, he's developed a relationship with Elijah, and, you know, Rick Joyner has a relationship with different ones. Anyways, well, I, I, I shared that at a church, and uh, I, I got a call from a pastor I really love, and he said, Chris, we loved what you said, but there's about 10 people, <laughs> 10 people in my church that tuned you out after you talked about Joan of Arc. And because uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it can offend people like, oh, I, I don't believe that. And now they're starting to think about Joan of Arc and not the rest of the teaching. So I don't want to do that. But at the same time, what really helped me in my walk with the Lord was Neville Johnson and some of these other guys who started breaking barriers for me in my understanding. Like he, like I remember back in the 80s when Bob Jones would come to, we were in Pasadena and he went to Anaheim with John Wimber and he started talking about these angels visiting him every night and it was just blowing our minds and I was just looking at him thinking, who, you know, was that one movie? Who are these guys? And it was Paul Kane and, and Bob and, but they, little by little, they started breaking that religious uh, box that I'd contained my Christianity and growing up as a Baptist uh, with godly parents, but having a mindset. I got healed. I had a shoulder injury going into, I went to Arizona State in 78, and uh, my dad actually was one of the ones that operated on my shoulder with another doctor. He was, he's a doctor. And uh, I went to Arizona State, and so I was uh, kind of a, you know, I love Christians, but I love non-Christians. I would hang out and in, in party, and then I'd go to church on Sunday. I was just kind of, one of the guys said, Chris, you're godly on one side, worldly on the other, and the angels don't know who you are. And I didn't know who I was, honestly. So I was confused, and, and uh, one of the times, that we called this guy JC because he would, this was a secular, you know, I, one of the reasons I went there, because it was like the party, you know, party school of the, of that year in the country and I was in Minnesota thinking I need to go and just get away from everything and just party a little bit, <laughs> whatever. So I went to Arizona State and we called this guy JC. He would open up his door and he would say, the first of the week is on my door. <laughs> People would be swearing at him down the hallway. <laughs> you know, it was funny. He didn't care. He just kept putting the verse of the week up and it, people would rip it down or write profanity on it. And uh, one day I was just sitting with him for uh, lunch. I, I, li- I like the Christians. I grew up in a Christian family, so I didn't mind sitting with him or sitting with the other guy. And he said, Chris, uh, do you need anything from, from Jesus? And I thought to myself, I didn't, no one had ever asked me that before. And I thought, well, yeah, I've got a shoulder injury. Sure, it would be nice to be healed. I, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, do some sports I hadn't done for a while or as good as I could do. And he said, well, come next Thursday. We'll have a prayer meeting. And I came, and him and his other friend uh, prayed for me, and I felt this fire go through my shoulder. Now, I'm a Baptist. Yeah, I don't know what the... I said, there's a fire in my shoulder. What's going on? What are you guys doing to me? And, uh, and, it, and it was perfectly healed. It was the most awesome thing. And so I went back to my room and cried. I didn't cry because I got healed, because here was my thinking as a Baptist. I thought, God can only be at one place at one time. <laughs> I said, you came to me. You could have came to anybody else. So I, I was a little confused. But I still was really tender, and I wept in my uh, dorm room. Uh, and, of course, we didn't have cell phones in 78. You, to communicate to your family, you would write letters, right? And so I wrote a letter to my dad saying, Dad, I had, and mom, I had this encounter, and God healed my shoulder, and it's amazing, and, and uh, my dad wrote back, and he said, well, well, son, <laughs> we know God heals in Africa, and we're glad he healed you. 
But he was like, I don't know what to do with that. But then he ended it and he said, just don't hang around any tongue talkers. <laughs> I was like, it's too late for that, Dad. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's funny, funny season of my life. And I, went, I, I, I was at Arizona Street and we were baptizing people in the fountain. And I thought, this is incredible. And I thought, if I go to a Christian school, can you imagine how incredible that would be? And so I transfer to a school, and I'm like, where are all the Christians? Everyone said they were a Christian, but there's nothing happening, and I was so disillusioned. And I'll tell you how I met my wife. I was at the payphone, and uh, I, was, I was saying, nobody, I don't know who I was talking to, and she tells me the story. She says, nobody here is seeking God, and I slammed the phone down. It must have been somebody in Arizona. And, uh, and she, she, she's reading the, you know, the, the, board which says what's for sale or jobs or whatever and she turns to me and she says oh what are you going to do about it (laughs) and I said I'm going to start a prayer meeting and she said okay let's do it and so three of us started this prayer meeting and it ended up to be a really a a, dozens of people getting filled with the spirit just a wonderful time but then the campus pastor came and he said Chris you're a cult leader and I'm going to warn your so he warned everybody in the school about this guy who was a cult leader. And uh, I had actually prayed for a guy. Now, now this is interesting to me. I was praying for healing, people were getting healed, but I was not a sanctified individual. I was still half, half godly and half uh, worldly. Uh, you know, just a young Christian trying to figure out what this thing was about. And I remember praying for a guy on the football team, and he had a full-length cast on. He came to our, um, by, uh, our prayer meeting, prayed for him, and he said, I feel this fire in my leg. And he goes, do you know what that is? I'm like, I knew one thing. <laughs> I said, I know what that is. God is healing your leg. Let's cut off your cast. I grew up in a, a family that cut off cast. My dad was a doctor. So we got the scissors out. <laughs> we cut that cast off, and he went back to school, walked back to uh, class, and I get this note in my... Um, my P.O. box at school and says, come and see me immediately, sign the football coach. And I thought, this is awesome. The football coach is just going to thank me for healing his players. <laughs> and uh, I, go, I go to the football coach and he starts yelling at me, you had no right to heal my player. And I'm like, wow, this is really mixed up. <laughs> uh, of course, I didn't heal anybody. Jesus did through me, but well, I don't know. That's... That, Jesus said, go heal the sick. So who's doing it? Anyways, uh, so it was an interesting season, but uh, I don't know why I'm telling stories. I'm supposed to be teaching. <laughs> okay, okay, let's get back to the word. Okay, so the dream I had a couple years ago. In this dream, the father takes me into what was called the trophy room in hell. No, allegorical, literal. It, it was just a dream, and I was there, not just a dream. I've realized that dreams are, the, you're in the spirit, and it's, you're often there. It's a real deal. You're moving, and I, I'm in this, I'm in the Father's presence, and he's taking me very quickly into this trophy room in hell, and I'm seeing all these different um, uh, monuments that Satan had made of things that he had stolen from the body of Christ, like giftings and callings and all these things. I was like, this is amazing, all these things that he's stolen and he's placed them as his trophies. And then I went to the most valuable um, a thing that the enemy had stolen and it was the uh, 
priestly robes and the kingly robes, and I knew it was the Melchizedek priesthood. He had stolen it, and here's what else, in that place, I knew, you know how it kind of flashes in your mind, you just know things that you don't know normally, and I knew that these things had been stolen, not just by the enemy, but by friends whispering in your ear, saying that's not for today, you know, you know, well, don't don't hang around the tongue talkers. You know, healing happens in different countries, but be careful. It's demonic here in the states. You know, whatever. Or, you know, the Melchizedek priesthood is that's Jesus. It's not you. And so, however, the enemy uses the smaller demonic. You know, the 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 power uh, uh, structure of the spirit realm. I was saying on Friday. I have a, a good friends, the stories, and Kathy, uh, some friends in Charlotte. He leads an um, investment club on Saturday. He's been a 30-year friend, and, and uh, another friend that lives there, Kathy. We were talking about this, um, this witch, uh, one of the highest up, and I won't get into the details, but she was um, in line to succession to some of the highest authority in the demonic realm on the earth where they were meeting nightly and, and talking directly with Satan, just a handful of these uh, ladies. And uh, she had gotten saved out of that, and I, well, like I shared on Friday, but I want to share it again. Uh, she said that there's not a church in America that is moving with the Spirit of God, that's not moving forward, where the enemy doesn't send a witch into that church dressed nice with their Bibles, cursing the the finances and cursing the health and cursing everything and then going back to their coven in that city and then they're all strategically cursing they have they 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 send them in they want and and some of them i i know i've talked to to one of them who had and this was a friend of mine in seattle in portland who had talked he had a guy come in that was trying to cause division in his church and he was so frustrated that he couldn't cause division. They finally went to the pastor and said, maybe I should give my heart to Jesus. This is the first church I haven't been able to uh, divide. And uh, so the the pastor friend of mine was talking to him and uh, he said, if I go back to my handlers, they'll likely kill me because they are, or beat me up badly because I've been unsuccessful. I've never been unsuccessful before by the, the maturity of their demonic gifting, releasing curses that are coming to pass. And one of the things he said during this prayer time to the pastor was, you, the demonic spoke through him, through this uh, guy uh, in the occult, and he said, you pastors are so stupid, you don't understand the blood. And if you only understood the blood. And anyways, it, it, of course, that was a stupid demon because then the pastor started saying, we gotta understand the blood and start understand communion. And uh, I think I might have shared on, on uh, the other night that uh, last year I was taken in a dream into Psalm 23 and the Lord was, I don't know if it was the Lord or an angel, but the voice was speaking to me in the dream and reading Psalm 23 and it said, in the presence of, uh, I'll, I'll place a table before you in the presence of your enemy. 
And I said in the dream, can I see that table? And the Lord show, opened up and showed me the communion table. He said, this is, your, this is what I want you to focus on, Chris. I want you to understand the depths of my blood, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Because in the demonic realm, the powers associated with the, uh, uh, with the, the bloodshed, whether, whether it's abortion, whether, you know, there's a, I don't know if you saw this recently, but um, one of the cults came out and is suing the state that is, is uh, making abortion illegal because it's part of their right to their religion. It was kind of a crazy type. This, you know, we have a right to this in our religion. Basically, they're saying, this is our power center. It's the shedding of innocent blood or any blood. Uh, it, there's different levels of increase of authority depending on the innocency of the blood that's being shed. But if they can't find innocency, they'll take somebody off the street person off the street and sacrifice them. It's a, there's an evil thing happening be, that we just don't hear about unless we're in, in, in touch with those that are actually delivering with the, uh, are, are ministering to the Satanists and the ritual abuse people. Anyway, so I, I get this dream. There's a key floating in the, in the, right before me the whole time as I'm in this trophy room in hell and I know it's the Father's key. It's not Satan's key. I know I know I have every right to take anything out of this trophy room that I want. I have the key, the body of Christ has the key. And I go, it's just as fast as I went now, I, I went back up and I said, I gotta understand, uh, I gotta understand the depths of Melchizedek. And so what I, uh, I'll just kind of summarize some of the things that have been meaningful to me. I don't have time to go into all the teaching, but I started seeing the, the Garden of Eden, the restoration of Eden as a key time because when God made Adam and Eve, he made a royal priesthood. He made kings and queens in a garden and his commandment to them was to, uh, to, to take dominion and cover the earth with heaven. Eden, uh, the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 says it was a garden, but it was a, garden, it was a mountain garden and it was a place where heaven and earth met. And that's what Adam was to take heaven. The, the, the mountain in scripture is always the meeting place of God. So Moses goes up the mountain, you know, in Exodus. It, we think he went up there one time, but there's at least eight or 10 times, different times where Moses go, he's traveling up and down this mountain to have a meeting with God. That, that, this is interesting. Well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So, so you've got uh, in Genesis 2, I'll go over this real quickly again. So God creates uh, water to come up out of the earth. He, then he takes water. He makes this mud man called Adam. And then out of Adam, he makes Eve. Um, it's interesting. In the Hebrew, it says God, uh, how, how's it go? God formed Adam. God built Eve. They're two different Hebrew words. Paul tells us insight into, in Romans and, and different places that Adam represented Christ, Eve represented the church. Christ has to be formed in man before there's an ecclesia, before there's a governing church. The, the church in the New Testament isn't called church, it's called the ecclesia. There is something called the church, it's a gathering, uh, a, a, a place where people would come together but not rule and reign. Now, uh, and then the ecclesia was a gathering where people would rule and reign. It was the governing authority on the earth. And so in Genesis, God forms Adam, builds Eve, and you and I, Christ has to come to a place of formation 
before we become the Eve, the ruling ecclesia. That's why James says in chapter three, he, start, he says, with your tongue you bless God and you praise God, but with that same tongue, it, it's, it's, lit on hell, it's lit on fire by hell and you start gossiping and backbiting and accusing one another. This should not be. And he basically, and James is saying, God wants to get the hell out of you. He wants to get that, that uh, accusation, gossip, backbiting. And we need to start seeing everybody in this room, everybody in this city, they're to, every one of us are to be image bearers of Christ. We can't attack them. We, got, we can attack what's behind them, the demonic influence of them. And I struggled with this because there's certain Pelosi's I don't like. I, there are certain people I don't like in government, and they, I, I struggle. Like, do I really have to pray blessing? Can I play, you know, fire from heaven on them? And I, I I've got to, you know, I've got to see that. Look, Chris, they're they're so uh, influenced by the demonic realm. They don't even know who they are. They, they've been giving themselves over. So no, I can't pray like that. I've got to pray. God, take the veils down. They say Isaiah twenty-five. Isaiah 25 is an interesting passage on communion because it talks about eating the uh, fat things the, the, and the wine on the lees. And the Lord opened that scripture up to me and said, Chris, that's the fat things is the lamb that they were eating. The wine on the lees is a communion. They're eating the lamb and they're, they're eating his body, drinking his blood, and as they do that, it says the veil is, uh, is taken off the nations. I'm like, oh, this is so profound. See, it says in, in Proverbs, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Mercy and truth is the body and the blood. All the paths of the Lord end up going to the, to the, the, the Revelation 12. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, mercy, and the, uh, the how's it go? The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, which is, it's the truth. It's the blood and the, and the body of Christ, and then they loved not their lives unto death. They no longer, uh, they no longer insisted on their own morality, but they came into Christ in the fullness. So, so Melchizedek, we, we see this priesthood. You, you've got, uh, you've got God saying uh, he, he created Eden, which was, however you look at it, spherical or, or rectangular, whatever. But I'm just trying to get you a picture. And then it says within Eden he created a garden. And then within garden, he, he planted the tree of life. You've got the picture of the tabernacle, a picture of the temple. It's got the outer court, the inner court, and then the holy of holies with the tree of life. And, and this imagery, this narrative patterning goes on from Genesis all the way through. That's why when uh, Moses is standing and he's looking at this burning bush in scripture, bush, vine, and tree, all are tree. You could say that's a tree. That's a, if you, you could call a vine a tree, you could call a bush a tree, you could call a tree a tree. So there's a burning bush, a burning tree, and what does God say to Moses? Basically, he said, take off your shoes, you're in the temple, is what he's saying. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, you're in the holy of holies. Here's the tree, uh, here's the tree of life, here's the burning bush. I, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a narrative patterning, you can see it, all through scripture, we looked at uh, Proverbs a little bit the other night, I'm not gonna go there now, but so, so uh, let, me go, let me go to this uh, passage in Galatians, I'm not gonna turn there, but in Galatians three, it, it talks about the promises of the covenant, and then a couple verses later, it talks about the book of the law. 
And this is something I didn't understand. I, I went to, you know, I ended up going to, getting a, a Bible degree in college, went on to get a seminary degree, and I never was taught some of these things. Uh, I guess that's why they, anyway, I won't make any jokes. Uh, had some good, good professors. But one of the things I didn't see was that in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord comes in Exodus 19 and he says, I wish you were all a kingdom of priests. He said, basically, I took you on the eagle's wings, uh, delivered you out of Egypt. Basically, he's saying, I, I delivered you by grace. It's my will that you all would be kings and priests. And uh, the people in Exodus said, that sounds good to us, right? And then it, uh, it's like a mar- it's not like, I believe it's a marriage proposal God was doing with, uh, with the people. Now, I want to go back because this covenant of promise starts with, uh, the, the big one starts with Abraham. He comes to Abraham and says, I'll make you a father of many nations. The king, everyone on earth is going to be blessed. In chapter 15 is a key chapter because this is where Abraham meets Melchizedek. But, but he says to the Lord in that chapter, he says, how do I know this is true? How do I know you're going to make me a father of many nations and all the people of the earth are going to be blessed? And so the father says to Abraham, okay, go ahead and get five animals, slice them up, <laughs> we're going to make an offering, and as you know, when they cut a covenant, they put each side of the animal on, on, on a side of a little canal that the blood would flow into, and then you would walk through the blood, making the covenant, basically, as your feet are bloodied and your garments get bloodied, you're saying, if I break this covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to me. But the interesting thing in chapter Genesis 15 is that God puts, well, it says there is a, well, he puts uh, Abram, Abram to sleep, and it says a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass through the, the blood. Well, what's a smoking furnace and a burning lamp? Well, in Exodus, when God came down to the mountain, it says he came down as a smoking furnace. We know the burning lamp is Christ. He's always the light in scripture. He, he's the light of the world. He's the, you know, the, the branch of the menorah. He, he is that light that's shining. You've got the Father and the Son walking through the covenant in Genesis 15, the most amazing thing, getting bloody, basically what they're saying is, if we break this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant ceases to exist. Well, guess what? The father and the son can't break a covenant. They put Abraham to sleep. Abraham wakes up. Now you've got this covenant of promise. That's why Galatians says the book of the law will never override. The covenant of promise will always exist. So, I'm going to skip around here just so we can follow this. So you've got, a, you've got the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going, to, I'm going to share the transition in a second. You've got the book of the law operating at the same time throughout the Old Testament, but you, only could, you could only enter into the uh, covenant of promise if you could see it. That's why David, who has, a, uh, who has the, the presence of the Lord in his tent, the tent of David, the tabernacle of David, he's putting on a linen ephod, dancing in the presence of the Lord, David was a king of Judah. The people of Judah could not be the priesthood. It was Aaron's sons, the Levites. Levites could be, could only, the Levites were the only ones that could go into the presence of the Lord without dying. If, if you went into the presence of the Lord without dying, you'd be the Uzzahs, the, the ones that would go in there and try to touch the ark and different ones. They would die. David is eating the showbread 
in the holy place. He's not falling over dead, and he's from Judah. Why? Because he wrote Psalm 110. He understood he's a Melchizedek priest. He's, not, he's, he's going back to the covenant of promise in Genesis 15, and Genesis 15 is where Abraham just defeats the kings, the four, is it four or five kings, and, and, and it says the king of Salem, which was Jerusalem in that day, it was called Salem, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out to meet Abraham. Abraham bows down and ties to Melchizedek. Melchizedek offers him what? Bread and wine. He's a, he's a type of Christ. It's a type and shadow of Christ. If it wasn't a Christophany or a Theophany, everyone has a little bit different understanding. Who was Melchizedek? Was it Shem? Was it a salient being? Was it some heavenly being? Was it, was it Christ in man, a Theophany or Christophany? doesn't matter to me. I, if the, I think if the Lord would have wanted us to know, he would have made it really clear. It does, what we do know, it was a picture of Christ. In the New Testament, in Hebrews, it says Christ is the high priest of Melchizedek. It came in the high priest of Melchizedek. He is that, but not only him, but we're in him. We're, we're part of that high priesthood. So in, just quickly, this is, hopefully this isn't too confusing, but in, Genesis, in Exodus, you've got... God's saying, I would, would that you would all be priests. It was a covenant of promise. See, with the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham would screw up and call his, his wife his sister so he doesn't get killed, and he doesn't get, he doesn't get reprimanded. He doesn't get killed for that. In the law, like they, God told the Israelites, you know, uh, when the manna was coming down, you pick it up for uh, six days, but on the seventh day, I'll provide for you. On the Sabbath day, I'll provide for you, however it goes. Well, they were like, well, we're just, we're kind of scared that you're not going to show up, so we're going to pick it up on the Sabbath day too. And so they did, and God just moved on and kept on providing manna. They were under a covenant of promise, but as soon as they entered into the covenant of the law as a people, guess what happened when they picked it up on the Sabbath day? They were struck dead. Just boom, they died because they're under a different covenant that they agreed to. So you see, the covenants, depending on which covenant you lived under, one was death and one was forgiveness and grace and God just kept providing and honoring and loving. Uh, there's just story after story. So in Exodus 19, in this covenant of promise, it's a marriage proposal. The, the vows of the proposal, I believe, are Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. These were not under the law. These were still under the covenant of promise. We've put them under the law. There was no curses in those under the people that were embracing curses towards people that would attack them, but not them. You've got, and then you've got um, in Exodus 24, verse, I don't know, 8 or 9, it talks about Moses... He reads the covenant of promise to all the people. He takes blood and sprinkles all the people. He's sealing a covenant right now. He's saying, you guys are kings and priests. I'm sealing this covenant. And then it says he had a meal with God. It's a pretty crazy, uh, crazy covenant. That covenant ends in 20, Exodus 24, 11. Well, it's interesting, of course, that covenant doesn't last long because while Moses is up on his trip to the mountain to visit God one time, the people down below are kind of nervous like he's taking too long. Did God kill him? What happened? They go to Aaron and say, hey, why don't we build a, a, a golden calf? 
Well, they're committing idolatry at the bottom of the mountain when God, that was part of the vows. We will not commit adultery, part of the Ten Commandments. God says his anger was consumed because this beautiful Abrahamic covenant that he initiated in Eden, he's restoring in Exodus. He says, I want you all to be kings and priests. They're already breaking the covenant. And he says, okay, Moses, I'm gonna consume all of them. I'm just gonna wipe them all out. And now you've got a, a royal priest in Moses who says, no, I'm gonna take that place of a priest. I'm gonna say, God, don't blot them out, blot my life out. He becomes that royal priest in, in the middle of this, the God and the people. And God says, okay, I won't destroy them for your sake. I'll just kill 3,000 of them. You know, so he kills 3,000 of them. Uh, and, and, and he goes down the mountain, you know the story, breaks the, the covenant, uh, the, the stones. And, and then Moses says something interesting. He says, okay, who's on the Lord's side? Who steps forward? The Levites step forward. God takes this Levite people, makes them priests. It was never his intention to have the Levites be the priesthood. It was always his intention that we were all royal priests. But now he has to have a go-around because of his holiness. We'll kill everyone because now they're saying, we want to be in this new covenant. We don't, you know, during Moses, we don't want intimacy with God. Moses, you go up and talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. You go tell us what to do. And uh, so they agreed to this book of the law covenant, which was going to kill them. It was never God's heart for them. And so you've got this whole uh, history of the, the, those under the law being punished because that was their agreement. It, it was a terrible covenant to put themselves under. People like David didn't. Uh, people like Samuel, who slept right next to the Ark of the Covenant, should have been killed. He was a tribe of Ephraim. He wasn't a Levitical priest. And so you've got this, uh, this go-between. It's interesting, during the Tabernacle of David, there was also Moses's. Uh, tent was still going on, but the ark had been removed for, what, 20 or 30 years? I'm not sure exactly, maybe more. There was no presence in this ark, but the Levitical priests were still ministering with no presence in Moses' tabern tabernacle tent. Well, David had the presence of the Lord. He's dancing before the Lord. There's no veil. He's bringing people in. Why? because he just created a Melchizedek priesthood in the tabernacle of David. That's why Amos says, there's a time coming when I'm gonna restore the tabernacle of David. There's a time coming when I'm gonna restore royal priesthood among my people. Just like David tasted of it, the, the type and shadow is, is in uh, Zechariah. There's the high priest Joshua, who's taken up into the presence of the Lord. And it's so... It, the, now listen, this is Old Covenant, Old Testament types and shadows. He goes up, Zechariah is with him, and he's, Zechariah is telling the angels, hey, put a, turban, put a clean turban on uh, Joshua while you're at it. It's the most interesting story. You've got this interaction with the prophet, the priest in the Lord's presence. You've got the enemy, it says, that's accusing Joshua. Why was the enemy accusing Joshua? Because Joshua was the high priest, and he's being told by the Lord uh, if you would obey my ways and, and, and do this, I'll make you a judge over the people. He was actually saying uh, to Joshua, there's a Melchizedek priesthood that's higher than the Levitical priesthood that you're under, I wanna bring you into. The enemy is always resisting the priesthood. This is the picture, the enemy is, enemy is trying, trying to get his way. The enemy does that to Zechariah, uh, to Joshua in the book of Zechariah. He does it to us today. He's always resisting the priesthood because the priesthood, the royal priesthood is what, changes this world. We're, we're asking the wrong question if we're saying, 
uh, God, where are you today in this world? That's the wrong question. The question is, where are we as royal priests? Because if we don't take our position, the world goes on as it goes on from evil to evil until the priest steps in. The royal priest takes his place with intimacy, hears the revelation of the Father, and then declares the Father's will on the earth, and it changes. This is our responsibility. Too often we're pointing the finger at the, whoever it is, the prophets, the prophets got it wrong. Well, Here's the issue with prophecy, which we don't understand that often. I'm not saying this is always true because the prophets do get it wrong. But let's say the prophet, there's someone that prophesied over you and it doesn't come to pass. Once the prophet releases the prophecy, now the, the burden is on you. <laughs> he, he's released it. It's not his responsibility to fulfill it. He's given the word, and now you may have to deal with James 3 and say, hey, there's a world of evil in your tongue. Deal with that, and then I'll... Because here's the issue. The mind transformation comes before the transfiguration. We're asking the Lord to transfigure us, and he's saying, well, I'll transfigure you, but you've got to transform your mind. It's kind of like I heard this pastor telling a story, and he said he went to this place, and they had a, they had a lion that you could take a picture with. And he said, I don't want to take a picture with the lion. That freaks me out. You know, he's like, I don't want to. He said, yeah, you can do it. Just go. And so he goes, puts his hand on the lion. They take a picture and he screws out of there. He's like, that was good enough for me. I didn't care about the, being with the lion. But he said, how do you do this with the lion? How can you, how can that lion uh, just sit there? And he said, well, here's what we do. We take that lion as a cub. We put it among 12 puppies, dogs, and it thinks it's a dog. It trains like a dog, so a human, uh, humans are masters, they're not food. Just like a puppy wants to serve the master, the, the, lion, the lion grows up in that atmosphere and thinks it's a big dog. And, uh, but that's kind of like the church. We're, we're a lion, but we act like a dog. We're just the opposite. You know, we're, we don't understand the great authority we have. And so I'll transition quickly because I, I want to get to the New Testament. So... In the New Testament, we got this incredible story about John the Baptist who's going to baptize Jesus. And John the Baptist, his uh, lineage, both his parents are Levite priests. Very fascinating. So the Levitical, not only Levite priests, it says they're righteous priests. They're from the line of Zadok. The, the, the Zadok line are the ones that minister in the Holy of Holies. John the Baptist had every right to baptize. He was a Levit- Leviticus priest. In the Old Testament, do you know what the baptism was called? It was called mikvah, and you are fully immersed as a priest, as consecrated under the priesthood. That's what baptism was. Here's what, here's what I believe happened. John the Baptist was baptizing everybody. The, the, and it says the Pharisees sent this, uh, the, the priests and the Levites to go confront John and find out what was going on. So the priests and the Levites are confused by why does this guy think he can baptize? They didn't know he's in the high priestly line of Levites. Says he's the greatest man born of woman. I think he was the greatest high priest in the Levitical order because he's about to baptize the greatest high priest ever, the Melchizedek priest, Jesus. He's the greatest man born of woman, but the least in the kingdom because the Levitical priesthood is passing away. The Melchizedek priesthood is going forward. And he's, he's baptizing uh, Jesus, and Jesus, uh, he, he, remember the story, he, he goes down, he says, I'm not worthy to unlo- unloose your, your sandals, however it goes, unlatch your sandals. And Jesus says something interesting, he says, to fulfill un- all righteousness, we need to do this. 
So John the Baptist, the, the high, the, the, the Pharisees come and say, are you the Messiah? Why are you baptizing? He said, no, I'm just one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Here's what I believe. I believe John the Baptist saw Jesus the forerunner coming in the spirit of Melchizedek. John the Baptist is looking back and he's saying, the covenant of promise is just about to be restored. The Levitical priesthood is just about to be washed away. What we see in, in uh, Hebrews 5 and 7. And he's saying, I am going to baptize everybody into priesthood. It, he was not baptizing people into salvation, obviously. He wasn't just baptizing people as an uh, inward change, outward sign to an inward change. John the Baptist was saying, it's time to baptize people again like the, like the priests did, full immersion because a whole generation is gonna become priests. Jesus gets baptized. It's the most amazing story. He comes out of the water. The voice from heaven goes, this is my beloved son. The Melchizedek priesthood, according to Hebrews, was taken into effect by a vow. It had to be a, 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 a spoken vow. The, the, the spoken word came to Jesus. You are, this, you are my beloved son. You are the Melchizedek priesthood. Now you've got, you've got the Levitical priesthood passing away, the Melchizedek priesthood coming forward. Peter's flipping out, I think, because he says, everyone's saying, what, what should we do? And Peter said, oh, I know what to do. Repent and be baptized. Because Peter, who wrote 1 Peter 2, 5 or 9, whatever it is, he said, you all are a royal priesthood. He's flipping out because he's saying, I know what's taking place. He had a revelation that John was baptizing people into the priesthood. Now we've got the Melchizedek priesthood. All of you need to be baptized in the priesthood. This is what baptism, the, I think the core of baptism is, is, a, is regeneration unto original intent, which was a restoration of Eden, Adam and Eve. You guys are a royal priest. Jesus uh, 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 comes out. And here's what happens, very interesting. So you've got Caiaphas, who is actually the high priest during the days of Jesus. Caiaphas is not happy. He's like, who are these guys baptizing? So Caiaphas, like Matthew 26, he calls Jesus, and he's got witnesses. He's gonna prove Jesus is not the Messiah. And so he calls Jesus, he's got these false witnesses, and he says to Jesus, are you are you the Messiah, however, however it states it? Are you, the, are, you the, are you the one? Are you the king? And so forth. It says Jesus remains silent, right? He doesn't say a word. Then Caiaphas does something very interesting. He says, I adjure you, I command you, Jesus, to tell me if you're the one. And uh, he's got a couple of false witnesses who stand up and say, hey, we heard him say in three days he would destroy this temple and raise it up. And, 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 and Jesus, Jesus answers Caiaphas the second time when he said, I command you. In Leviticus 5, it says if there's a false witness and you're in the hearing of the false witness and you know that they're lying, you must speak. Jesus had to speak according to Leviticus 5 to fulfill the, the, the law. He had to fulfill it completely. Jesus says, as you say, uh, Caiaphas, yes, I'll be, today or however it goes, I'll be, sitting with, I'll be sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's quoting a, messy, uh, uh, a Melchizedek psalm, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. He's saying, yeah, I, will be, I am the one, the Messiah. And you know what the next verse says? Caiaphas rips his his uh, priestly robe. Well, in Leviticus 10, if you rip your priestly robe, you're disqualified from the priesthood. 
He just, it's the day before Passover, Caiaphas is ripping his, his robe, he just disqualified himself. Now you've got the, Jesus, the high priest, overseeing his own Passover. He's the only high priest in the land. He's gonna oversee his Passover. It's the most amazing story ever. And, and then in Revelations 5, you know, Jesus is prophesying, you are that royal priesthood. That's, that's our, our position to come into. I mean, this is, this is a restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. All of us, royal priests, all of us have no excuse for the world. If we all knew who we were, we would change atmospheres and cities and, and regions. And uh, I have a, a, a fun friend of mine, and he said he's in part of Tennessee and part of Louisiana or something. I can't remember the borders. But he said, Chris, God has given me a responsibility to cover this part of Tennessee and this part of uh, Louisiana, I think. And I thought, you've come into your royal priesthood. You know your boundaries. He said, yep, I'm not letting the enemy, this is my, this is my area. It may, be a, it may be a household, it may be a city, it may be a region, we, whatever. What has God given you? You're faithful in one talent or 10. He may be a 10 talent prophet he, or whatever. Um, I, I do believe, I've been talking to my friend Wayne, uh, and uh, I do believe that we're in a season where the Melchizedek priesthood, the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood is above the fivefold ministry, and in a sense, uh, it's becoming the, the God's highest. You don't, who cares if you're called to the fivefold priesthood? You guys are called to the Melchizedek priesthood, the fivefold, uh, 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 whatever it's called, <laughs> fivefold jobs. We're, we're, we're in a higher calling than that. You don't have to be a pro- apostle or prophet. You're a royal priest. And that is the greatest authority on the earth. And there's no question. Ephesians is a book about Melchizedek priesthood. I, I firmly believe that. That it's talking about uh, the, the apostles and prophets and teachers are to build up that priesthood because they're higher with more authority than they are. They're to be, like Paul said, no, I'm a servant of all. Why? Because Paul's whole message was Galatians. You know, he's talking about that there's going to be a change from uh, the, the Moses law to the covenant of Abraham. If you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, he's talking about there's going to be a change from uh, the Levitical uh, priest to Melchizedek priest. And it, isn't it amazing? In Hebrews 5, Paul or whoever you believe wrote Hebrews says, I had a lot to tell you guys about Melchizedek, but you were too dull for me to share. And I, I had skipped over that my whole life. I've read that passage in five. It, that's my paraphrase, but if you read it, that's what it says. It says, you are so dull of hearing, I couldn't share anymore in the Melchizedek priesthood. Why was that? Because the first several verses of, of Hebrews talk about the trouble the Hebrews were having, the, the this, uh, Hebrew people were having, putting away with the Levitical works and earnings and they just couldn't do it. They said, it can't be this free. It can't be, it can't, you know, but, but, Ab- but to Abraham, it was a free gift. But it, I, I've got to do things. And, and Paul or whoever was saying, no, I can't even share you more about your responsibility as a, as a Melchizedek priest because you're still under the law. You've got to free yourself before I can share more. So uh, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Oh, let's just pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, God, for all of us being baptized into uh, original intent, God, your royal priesthood. We're so 
unbelievably honored that you would live your life through us and we could change the atmosphere on the earth and bring heaven to earth like Adam was mandated. And God, we pray in this hour that there would be manifest sons raised up into this priesthood, into this royal dominion place, God. We, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive that hundredfold uh, anointing, a uh, hundredfold return on our, our lives, Lord. And uh, we pray that you would find faith on the earth in Jesus' name.